I'll come back to the gospel text in a moment, but I want to, to first turn to the other texts in our readings for the day, Old Testament text, a psalm, an epistle, and then return to the gospel, because these, these texts present us with the mystery of Christ. As I said the last time that I spoke, we gather to turn our attention to Jesus, to see in Jesus who God is and who we are, what God wants for us and from us, and what we actually want for ourselves. So we do that again this week. Let's begin, though, with the passage that Shelby mentioned, Isaiah 53, which is the song of the suffering servant. And right from the first, Christians have understood this to be a prophecy about, about Jesus. Isaiah 53, 4, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned away to our own ways but the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. And listen to this next line. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to crush him. And again, as I've said, this passage has been understood right from the beginning of the church as a prophecy about Jesus, as a song celebrating who Jesus is and what he's done. And right from the very beginning, that line that I just drew your attention to has been difficult. It pleased the Lord to crush him. What does that mean? What does that mean? It's made all the more mysterious by the psalm we are given today, which is Psalm 91. Now think about that line. It pleased the Lord to crush him. He was punished for our iniquities in light of this promise. The one who lives in the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say to the Lord, who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, he will deliver you from the hunter's net and from the destructive plague. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a shield. You will not fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day, the plague that stalks in darkness or the pestilence that ravages at noon. Though a thousand fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. You will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord my refuge, the most high, your dwelling place, no harm will come to you. No plague will come near your tent. And so, the psalm promises that those who make God their habitation suffer no wrong. No harm will come to you. 
Isaiah 53 is a song celebrating that Jesus is God come among us and harm comes to him. And harm comes to him because God wills it. So which is it? Is it true that if we are hiding in the Almighty, no harm can reach us, no plague can touch us? Or is it true that it is sometimes God's will to crush us? Let's make matters worse before they get better. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Every high priest taken from among human beings is appointed to service Appointed in service for God for the sake of the people to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And then we're told that Jesus is a priest in this way and, and not in this way. He's a priest, but not an Aaronic priest. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then verse 7, during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. Loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. One of the things that's happened in Christian America over the last centuries, generations is that we've become familiar with the Bible in ways that actually keep us from reading it. We've had a sense of a relationship with God that is presumed upon more than considered. We, we've become so familiar with Jesus that we think we know things we don't actually know about him. And one of the things I, I hope to do this morning before, as I said, before it gets better, is to let you feel the angst that comes when you actually pay attention to what the text says. That in, in the text that I just read, we were told that Jesus is a high priest who's touched with our pains. He lives among us and in the days of his flesh, he cries out in anguish and is heard so that he can learn obedience through the things that he suffers. What sense does this make? If he is God, if he's God's son, how is he learning obedience? And how is he learning obedience in the things that he suffered? Again, the psalm promises that he who hides in the Almighty will not suffer, that nothing will touch you if you're, sh if you're sheltered in God. If the hedge of God's presence is around you, no trouble will come near you. Though a thousand fall at one hand and ten thousand at the other hand, it will not come near you, the psalm says. And yet here we are reading Isaiah 53, he's crushed and God wants it. Two, that Jesus is crying out, he's groaning, he's grieving, he's broken in the days of his flesh, and he has to learn obedience through what he suffers. How does that make sense? We've mostly made sense of it, well, mostly we've ignored it. Mostly we've, not tried, we've tried not to make sense of it. But if we feel pressure to make sense of it, we've tended to make sense of it by assuming that there is a kind of hierarchy of orders in which the glory of God's sovereignty always takes precedence over the glory of God's mercy. 
that the glory of the Father, the glory of justice, always takes glory, takes precedence over the glory of the Son and the glory of forgiveness and compassion. And sometimes we know this is what we're doing, and sometimes we don't know this is what we're doing, but we are either explicitly saying or implying at every turn that the way you hold all of this stuff together is to suggest there are some things that belong to sovereignty and justice and power, and there are other things that belong to compassion and mercy and weakness. And what matters is that you keep the right kind of balance between them, and the way that you balance them is that you always let the power take precedence over the weakness and the justice take precedence over the mercy. So that the moment someone says something that sounds a little too merciful, we've got to try to balance that with some justice. God is good, but don't get carried away. God loves you, comma, but dot, dot, dot. And, And so we've learned to talk by balancing extremes. We make a statement about God Something that suggests that God is long-suffering, that God is reluctant to punish, but we immediately feel pressure to balance that with a claim that, but he, he won't hold off forever. The hammer will fall. It's, it's stopped now over your head, but it will crash on you. Just wait, right? And so we read texts like those we've read today, and we then group them into one or the other of those orders. So when we read Psalm 91, we put that on the side of the God who's good and merciful and kind, but we quickly rush to balance that with Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord to crush him. It could not be more wrong, unfortunately. That is not who God is. And the consequence of thinking and talking in those ways, trying to balance justice and mercy, trying to balance goodness and severity, trying to balance heaven and hell, is that you end up having to split the father from the son. So that the father is God wanting justice. The son is trying to get between the father's justice and us so that we aren't all damned. He can't save everyone from the drunk father, but some of the kids he can save. That the father is the one who just insists that everything stay neatly in order. And the son is like, oh, don't worry too much about it, dad. And so you end up with this rupture in the, in the life of God. Between the father who represents authority and power and dominion and strength. And the son who represents submission and compassion and weakness. But that is to disorder God's own life. You not only separate the father from the son and disorder God's life, you separate the creator from the creature. What you do is you write into the life of God and into our life with God the master-slave relationship. Someone has to be master and someone has to be slave. And we think that what makes that Christian is that they're both glorious. It's glorious to be a master and it's glorious to be a slave. But the glory of the slave is to obey the master, and the glory of the master is to be obeyed by the slave. And again, we write that logic of master and slave into the life of God. The father is the master, the son is the slave. And we write it into our relationship with God. God is the master, and I'm the slave. And on the face of it, that seems to be what Hebrews 5 is saying, that Jesus is the priest who in the days of his flesh offered up loud cries in anguish to God 
who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his godly fear, his reverent submission, and he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And once he was perfected, he became the source of eternal life. That, that tracks pretty neatly with the logic of master and slave. And one of the reasons we're so attached to the logic of master and slave is that we think if we give God mastery, if we let God be God, then when we really need it, he'll always come through for us. I'll serve you, God, and the fine print of me serving you is when I need you to do something for me I cannot do for myself, you'll come through. So I'll do for you what you want me to do, but the bargain is, because I'm doing for you what you want me to do, when I need you to do what I cannot do, you will. And Psalm 91 fits neatly into that category. God, I'll make you my habitation. I'll worship you and not any other gods. I'm really tempted to worship Moloch, but God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship you instead. That was an inside joke about Moloch, sorry. And because I'm worshiping you, God, you need to know I'm expecting you to do for me what those gods will not do. So if I'm sick or someone I love is sick, if the world is coming apart, if there's a pandemic, you protect me. I worship you, and the payoff is you protect me. You keep anything bad from happening to me. The problem is, it doesn't work like that. Like, and if you live life with your eyes open, you'll figure out very quickly, that's not how it works. And at that point, it becomes tempting to say, well, God is the master and I'm the slave. Who am I to question? And we end up saying something along the lines of Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And there's a, there's a kind of fatalism that can come to us that simply says, listen, God's the master. He can do what he wants. God is God. Who am I to question? All of that is profoundly, profoundly wrong. It dehumanizes us. It dehumanizes God. It strips us of our dignity, and it obscures the character of God. And we should know that because it's that thinking that underwrote the worst evils in our history. It's precisely that way of thinking that God is the master and we're the slave. God gets to do what he wants and we have to live with it. That underwrites every evil that Christians have supported including, obviously, the evil of slavery. Howard Thurman, who was a mentor, father for MLK, one of the most important theologians, I think, in American Christian history, talked about when he was a young man, his grandmother, whom he read, he read the Bible for her every day, she would not allow him to read anything from the letters of Paul, except 1 Corinthians 13. And when he was older, in college, he asked her, Grandma, like, why didn't you let me read Paul? Like, we got this whole Bible. And she says, here's why. Because when and she was a young woman during the Civil War, she was raised, born in slavery, raised in slavery, emancipated, of course, after the war. And she said, because when I was a slave, they would gather us for church. And every time we gathered for church, you know what text they took? From Paul. Slaves, obey your masters. He says, and to make matters worse, Paul was, for me, the preacher of the cross. 
And in my world, the cross was not a symbol of forgiveness and redemption. The cross was a burning symbol of oppression. The cross belonged to the, to the clan, not to the kingdom of God. And so we, we've underwritten incredible evils, not just the evil of slavery, but the evil of misogyny, the evil that has suggested that the man can do whatever he wants to do to whatever woman he wants to do it, because that's how God has ordered the world. We've used that kind of logic to underwrite protecting abusive priests. Right? When you think in terms of master and slave, this is really lighthearted stuff this morning, isn't it? <laughs> when you think in terms of master and slave, you will always justify the powerful no matter what they do. Because you've already assumed that to be powerful is the greatest good. That any other good comes from the good of those in power. In the master-slave logic, there is a glory of being a slave. Jesus becomes a slave, but the glory of being a slave depends upon the glory of being a master. And part of the sinfulness in us, part of the reason we continue to submit to that is not only because we want power, but because we want leverage with power. Because we think, all right, maybe I can't be powerful, but I can be the kind of slave that the powerful favors. And so we are caught, sin in us is caught in this ambition to either have power or at least have access to power through our slavery. And it's antichrist. It destroys our humanity. It defaces the character of God. It underwrites not life but death, not good but evil, not light but darkness, and we have to break with it. So we break with it by looking to Jesus and realizing, as he says in the gospel today, that he is the master who is a slave. He's not a slave who has a master. He is the master who is a slave. He says outright, listen to it again. Jesus called them and said, you know that among the Gentiles, among the nations, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great must be your servant. Now, if you hold to the logic of master and slave, that sounds like a technique. You want to be great tomorrow? Serve today. Start out by being a slave and God will promote you. That's antichrist. That's not the goal. The goal is not to be a master. God not only dignifies slavery, he exposes mastery as a lie. That's how he liberates us from slavery. Listen to this. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. God comes among us in the flesh not to be served, but to serve. This is, I think, maybe the hardest truth to get our minds around. That we're trying to serve a God who wants to serve us. We're trying to treat God as if he's our master when that is the last thing, literally the last thing God is interested in being. When in Philippians 2, we're told that Jesus comes among us, that 
The son has this intimacy with the father. He doesn't cling to it, but he empties himself into human life. He pours himself, takes on the form of a human being, takes on the form of a slave. We're not being told that God loves us so much he's willing to humiliate himself for us. We're not being told that God, even though he's a master, is willing to disguise himself as a slave. What we're being told is that the fullness of God can only come among us in the form of a slave because the form of a master is too small for God. The form of a master is too small for God. There is no one on earth God is less like than the person with power. The king is the one who's furthest from the image of God, not the nearest. The one who's nearest to the image of God is that little suckling baby. The least of these is nearest to the fullness of God. The greatest among you are the furthest from the kingdom. Jesus says this at every turn to everyone he meets. You don't get it, he says. The prostitutes and the tax collectors are going to go into the kingdom before you. If you want to enter the kingdom, you must become like this little child. And in the ancient world, children were slaves. I mean, there was no sentimentality in the ancient world about children. So when Jesus says, you must become like one of these little ones, he's saying, you, be you must become as insignificant, unimportant, powerless, fragile as this little child that is somebody's slave. If you don't do that, you can't even enter the kingdom. Now, how are we getting this so wrong? Because what we're trying to do is bring Christ into the master-slave relationship rather than letting Christ free us from it. Now, I've got a lot of work to do in just a couple of minutes. So, back to Hebrews 5. How else can we read what's happening here? What else might be happening if it's not the logic of mastery and slavery? What if Jesus means what he says when he says, I'm not your master. I'm your Lord as the one who serves you. I'm, I'm the one who gives you life. I'm the one who sustains your life. I'm the one who perfects your life because I, I need nothing from you. I mean, the, the whole the problem with the master-slave relationship is that the master is the one with the needs. The master is the one with the needs, and the one who makes the sacrifice is the slave. Like the master is the one whose needs have to be met. The slaves are the one who have to sacrifice so those needs can be met. But Jesus reveals that God is not at all like that. God has no needs. He doesn't need my obedience. He doesn't need my devotion. He doesn't need my worship. He certainly doesn't need my preaching. And everybody said, amen. Like there's no need in God. And he's the one who makes the sacrifice. He's the one who initiates. He's the one who washes our feet. He's the one who lays down his life. He's the one who bears responsibility for us. And so come back, come back to this, Hebrews 5. I'm hurrying. <laughs> don't, don't encourage me now. 
During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard. Now, right there, you should be brought up short. Wait a minute. No, he wasn't. He was heard. Who's he praying to? The one who's able to save him from death. Jesus, if you don't know this already, I'm sorry for spoiling it for you, is not saved from death. There there may really may be people here who don't know this. Like Jesus has this moment in this garden just before he's betrayed where he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And it turns out not to be possible. And within hours, his body is strung up on a rough cross between thieves, between heaven and earth. And what's coming out of him are screams of agony and the pain of forsakenness and forgiveness for those who've wronged him. So what are we being told when we're told that he cried out to be delivered from death and was heard? Well, this is a mystery. And this is the mystery that shatters the master-slave relationship. That shatters the lie that God has needs we have to meet by sacrificing for him. Jesus is heard and he learns obedience through what he suffers. Now here's, and you'll have to take my word for this or catch me later or wait till next time when I speak, if I ever speak again, I'll try to unpack this a bit. But this, this is the heart of Christian witness. Jesus is the fullness of the Father living a human life. Jesus is not the slave of the Father. He's the Son who is the fullness of the Father. That there's no separation between the Father and the Son. And the same intimacy the Son has with the Father is the intimacy that the Creator has with the creature. That in Jesus, the divine and the human are perfectly in communion. Without being mixed, without being confused... Without one dominating the other, Jesus lives the human life divinely and the divine life humanly. There's no discord inside of Jesus. The relation of the divine and the human are perfectly in harmony because in Jesus' relationship to the Father, there is full equality and absolute transparency. The Son is not less than the Father. The Father is not greater than the Son. The Son and the Father are one. As we say in the creed, he is God of God, very God of very God, light of light, of one being with the Father, begotten, not made. The Son and the Father are co-equal, co-eternal, identical in every way, except that the Father is the Father and the Son is the Son. And that, the fullness of that equality, the infinite, unbroken intimacy they share is the relationship you and I have with God. It is the relationship you and I have with God because Jesus accomplished it in his life. That what happens in the life of Jesus is that he brings the divine and the human into perfect intimacy. So just picture the cross. The arms of the cross intersect with that vertical beam. And at the point of that intersection, that's where we live. Where the divine and the human 
the heavenly and the earthly, the eternal and the temporal are perfectly at one. That's what the word atonement means. We are perfectly at one in him so that there is no confusion and no mixture, but there's also no rivalry between God being God and me being myself, which is why in Galatians 5, when we're getting the list of the fruit of the spirit, you know what the culminating fruit of the spirit is? Self-control. Because where God is, you are. Where God is most present, you are most yourself. God is not like the demons. The demons possess and strip you of your agency and strip you of your mind and strip you of your personhood. Where God is present, you are you. Uniquely you, fully you, utterly you. How is that possible? Because that's what Jesus lives. And he lives it into death. I'm like three minutes from being done, believe it or not. I'm not sure I believe it, but yeah, it's true. Think about this. What does it mean to say he was heard? He cried out to the one who's able to save him from death, and he was heard. See, as long as you hold to the master-slave relationship, you hold to it because you fear death. What the master needs more than anything else is to be protected from dying. Because the whole point of being a master is to accumulate things. It's to have stuff. That's why you're using all these other people, to get more and more and more. If you didn't have an ambition to have more, if you didn't fear death, you wouldn't own people. You wouldn't use people. You do it because you're afraid of death and you're doing everything you can to stave off death. But scripture again and again comes to these stories about how, listen, the masters die too. And what does it gain you to have all this stuff? Fool, this night your soul is required of you. So driven by the fear of death, we give ourselves to all kinds of evil. But Jesus faces death down and trusts the God who's able to save him from death, not from dying, but from death. And here's the glory of the gospel. Our God is a God who does not have to keep us from dying because he can destroy death itself. Jesus is not kept from dying. He's kept in dying and brought from the grave. And not brought from the grave alone, but brought from the grave with everyone death has claimed. That what's happening in the garden is Jesus is saying, I don't want to die if I don't have to. Yeah, it, it's right to not want to die. But I'm going to cling to you if you go into death. And so God goes into death and Jesus clings to him even in death. And what happens is because God is the God who is the creator of all things, death dies. Nothing happens to God. Whatever seems to happen to God actually happens to the thing that seems to be happening. When he's baptized in the water, he's not washed clean. The water is made holy. When the leper touches him, he's not made sick. The leper is healed. And when he dies, he is not dead. Death is dead. In the language of the liturgy, he tramples down death by death. So what happens in Jesus is that he clings to God in death. And God, who is life, destroys death. And in destroying death, frees everyone death has claimed, including you and me. 
including our enemies. And so I leave you with this. When we grasp this, when we grasp this, or when it grasps us, the world looks different. And there is no need to kill our enemies. Now, I'm not a prophet, not the son of a prophet. I'm not the nephew of a prophet or the cousin of a prophet. I'm not the neighbor of a prophet. But I know this for sure. Christianity in our world right now, American Christianity, evangelical Christianity, has lost its ever-loving mind. And it's lost its mind because it's caught in the master-slave logic. And it is afraid that it's going to lose things it cares about. And like every master, when there's a threat of an enemy taking our stuff... We are clambering to make people make sacrifices so we can survive. God's not interested in your survival. God has no stake in the future of America or the future of Christianity or the future of sanctuary. God is not afraid of what might happen if we die. We're going to. At some point in the future, hopefully the distant future, there will be no sanctuary. There will be no America. There will be no evangelicalism. And God will be God. And Jesus will be good. And the Spirit will be present. And the people of God will be the people of God. None of that matters in the big scheme of things. Now, I don't mean to downplay that there are real losses. But God is the God who does not keep us from dying, but saves us from death. And so I'm going to leave you with this quote by Olivier Clément, who's a, he died in 2007, I think, a French theologian. Listen to these words. The church exists in the world as an opening, an exorcism. It is a mortal wound for this idolatrous and deceitful world, but for the created world, it is the offer of transfiguration. And then he quotes this line from Jesus, where the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered. Hear me, when you know what Jesus knew in the garden, you can own your fear, Jesus is afraid and says as much, but he clings to God in his fear. And then Jesus tells his disciples in this passage that Clement is referencing, where the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered. What is he saying? If you go back and read the original passage, which is in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is telling them about the coming of the Son of Man. And he says, nobody will be able to miss it. When the Son of Man comes, you will know. And how will you know? Because there will be a carcass with a bunch of birds feeding on it. Whose carcass was he talking about? His own. How do we know who God is? Because we see him hanging dead on that tree outside of that city. And that carcass, the carcass of that Jew, abandoned by everybody who loves him, with wounds in his side and hands and feet and face, that carcass is the presence of God in the heart of death that's going to change all things. And when you know that, you know that nobody can do anything to you. You don't have to kill them. You can speak forgiveness right from that place. 
There is a time coming in which what we've known as Christianity, what we've known as our church, what we've known as our tradition will be a carcass. But if we cling to God, that carcass will be in communion with the body of the resurrected Jesus. We have nothing to fear. All right, thank you for your patience.